Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And today we are talking systematic theology too, still in the doctrine of salvation. Uh, last time we began our conversation on sanctification, and so today we continue on. How was your week, Matt? I heard you had a vacation. By the way, I hope my voice is coming across better. I've been told I was tinny sounding. Tinny, so I'm trying roomy, not to be echoey. It's not my fault. Yeah. It is, well, but. it was a uh, let's put let's put vacation in uh, quotation marks. <laughs> 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 so you you uh you were very kind and <laughs> offered to give me for a week your trailer. A nice trailer. A big a very trailer, nice trailer. Twenty five foot long trailer. I'm like this will be nice. Yeah. And I can tow this thing with my truck. And so you actually drove out to the campground to help set it up. Cause I don't know what I'm doing. I've never. Well, been yeah. Missing. Yeah. And well, that's where it all began and ended. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have time, nor do you guys care, but suffice to say it slipped the, the, the tongue slipped off the lift twice and buried itself in the dirt we had we broke two jacks <laughs> from our personal vehicles trying to jack the thing up so that we could just get it done yeah then everything looked okay well, i mean yeah. there was clearly a mouse that had gotten into the treasure yeah, but it was well, no big deal yeah, no big sweep deal it, sweep it out sweep it out don't tell lydia no nope. <laughs> you know just keep things quiet <laughs> it's camping and and the ac was working yeah which was nice and then from there went downhill yeah so there wasn't just one mouse no there there was uh there were several several nestings in there over the course of the winter and <laughs> it was everywhere and in everything and we were uh we were scooping it out you so know? so you decided then to go full on like hazmat well so the, the, the so i mean the, so the campers the, all thought you were doing meth yeah so that was sunday night i mean we had gotten done teaching sunday and drove out there and so it was late. The kids normally don't have maps, naps on Sundays. So we get out there after our disaster of trying to set the thing up. Uh, the kids were done. And now it's like 7.30. We hadn't yet gotten food. Hadn't 85 degrees, 90% yeah, yeah. humidity. Yeah, it was wonderful. And so I'm like, you know what? And then we get into the trailer and we just start, okay, we got to set up beds and sheetings and then where we discover more nests you know <laughs> so, so i'm like just the kids are done and i'm like we haven't even eaten i'm like forget it let's go home and we'll reassess tomorrow. fortunately you weren't on the other side of the country yeah just half hour drive so drop the kids off at the grandparents and we go and buy some cleaning supplies go out there lydia's got her full-on <laughs> face mask hazmat thing and uh so we get in there all day pretty much cleaning the thing, trying to disinfect and stuff. And then all the power goes out. So the ice cold air conditioner, everything, it's done. Gone, yeah. And and apparently it's a campground, not you. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the breaker wouldn't work. And then of course you can't get a hold of anybody after seven phone numbers and stuff. 
So once again, we'll so go exactly, home. So exactly, how many nights did you spend in that camper? Exactly zero. How many nights did you pay for? Four. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, you know what? I paid for this thing, and we're going to actually start a fire or do something and roast a marshmallow. <laughs> so we go out there the final night, and kids manage to burn themselves. Uh <laughs> I'm so sorry. Lydia's not feeling well, so she just sleeps in the van on a football, and it's just... So we, we roasted a marshmallow and a, apparently a four-year-old's hand, and, and we that packed was your, up and went home. That was your <laughs> can't-beat trip. Yeah. I, however, got a very clean camper now. Yeah, you're good to go because you're going this next week. Yeah. And hopefully the electricity will... Yeah. Be up to work. Anyhow. So all that to say is we both had ample opportunities to address sanctification in our lives. Yep. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So anyway, uh, last time we did talk about, though, that sanctification is a vital part of the Christian life. Uh, many are talking today about conversion um, and, you know, quote, coming to Jesus. and But not many pastors talk much about sanctification. Uh, it's just not a hot topic and not something that many preach on. Um, it, a lot of sermons on bettering yourself, dealing with things like anxiety or fill in the blank, whatever, but not a lot of talk on just progressive sanctification as the scripture lays out. No. Um, you know, all that matters really in practice is just becoming a Christian, uh, making that profession um, so there's a massive emphasis on being born again or accepting Jesus, but again, very little talk of uh, increasing personal holiness. But we mentioned last time that true saving faith will always result in a life that's increasingly conforming into the image of Jesus. And that increasing is a term we use specifically. Um, it's a person who, in other words, is completely devoted to following Jesus, but in all of his teachings. Uh, again, there's many who think that you just merely need to say a prayer, you need to raise a hand in a service, uh, you need to conform to certain behaviors of a church culture, for instance. And so when they do that, they then think it's the evidence that they've been truly saved. Um, you know, they, they have an experience in of emotion, maybe, in worship times. They've experienced connections with other Christians during times of prayer, uh, they've experienced friendship and acceptance within a community group. Um, but none of that, we would argue, is sanctification. Nor is it even proof that you've been converted. No, not at all. But most people will assume both. Yeah, well, you've had the experience. And, well, and, and because you're around a company of Christians, there is a byproduct that comes from that, of sure. just the Spirit's blessing of a, this community of believers. And so you're around these people, and you start to conform your life to somewhat like them. Um, you develop the speech. Yeah. Uh, maybe you start saying prayers over your meal, because mm. all of a sudden that's like supposed to be done. But you've never actually been converted. And you think, well, I'm doing these changes, and therefore I'm being sanctified. But that's not actually what sanctification right. is about at all. It might, I mean, I wouldn't, there's an aspect to it. Yeah. But, that's, but you can't lean on that as the evidence right. or the proof of anything. Uh, and yet on the other side of the spectrum of that, then there's others who are content simply to say that they believe in Jesus and yet nothing ever changes in their life. And this is what we called or what we've been talking about that idea of cheap grace. Uh, they'll, they'll take the death of Jesus, of course, to cover their sins. I'll take Jesus if, if that's what keeps me out of heaven. But they have little to no interest in actually following him other than just, you know, stating that 
they're, they have a profession, they're, they're, they're believing in him or something like that in the vaguest of way. Um, but again, that is not sanctification, nor is it the mark of one who's been truly converted. Uh, in fact, we would we would argue that it's maybe evidence to the contrary. Yeah, I remember a guy many years ago whose testimony was that son of a pastor, and he had asked Jesus in his heart at some age, um, started coming to our church, hearing a lot about sin, really didn't like that struggled over it but as he sat down and began to study because he's going to prove me wrong um he he's reading ephesians and romans <laughs> and he, he said that i think it was over the kitchen table one night he just start he just broke down because he's like oh my gosh i'm as bad as it says and it was there that he came to faith and it was really quite touching yeah, but yeah. again he but he said in his testimony i remember him in the baptismal pool saying I had my get out of hell free card um, because I had gone for it. I'd said the prayer. And countless people are in churches today that they think they've got the card, and so they're good. Right. Don't bother me with details. Yeah. And, and the, the scriptures are clear that the evidence of a true conversion is always made manifest in a changed life. Sure. Um, in so go ahead. We, we've been saying then that true Christianity necessitates then true sanctification. Um, you, you, make, you make the distinction, but you cannot separate those two things. I think that's Sproul that said that about faith and works. You need to make distinctions between faith and works, but you can never separate them because the Bible won't. Um, that's our point as well. It's the point of these episodes. So last time we began uh, by looking at the terminology that the Bible uses for sanctification. And so what we're going to do today is talk about some additional items that are related to the doctrine. So with that, um, what are those additional items? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, well, when it comes to, to sanctification, first of all, we would say that the mindset is central, your th that thinking yes. category, your mind. Didn't we talk about that a little bit? last episode of it starts in the mind and works outward yeah yeah we did do that episode on um true christianity or yeah. something like that yeah. where we were talking about those false forms of right and but but it always starts internally yeah. because it's a heart change because it's built into the repentance repentance is a change of mind uh more than a change of life but because you have a genuine change of mind and a life, life follows <laughs> it has to yeah like uh, but sometimes it has to catch up Yes. You know, it, you, you just, you, 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 as a young Christian, you're like, oh, that's sinful too? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <all> right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, now, let us caveat this by saying from, from God's perspective, the scriptures are clear that God is the ultimate worker behind the heart's inclination. First uh, Kings 8, I put 58 through 58, but that it's can... It's 57 to 58. Okay. Um says this, it says, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline so that he, meaning God may incline our hearts to himself for what purpose to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers or in Psalm 119 verse 36, uh, the psalmist there cries out, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And so it's clear that 
from God's perspective, it is first God who is that mover and changing the inclinations of a sure. dead man's heart. What about from man's perspective? Okay, so that's different, though. We're expected to set our minds in the right direction. Um, again, we're talking post-conversion here. So this is something that's now happened and that now comes on us. We're responsible to do. Um, never does the Bible give the sense of passivity in our sanctification. Um, so it always starts within the mind and heart. In fact, a, another quick story. I remember dealing with this, being asked to go to a study of some men to try to address an issue that they couldn't resolve where a guy in the group was saying, look, God is sovereign. All things are according to his eternal decrees. So far, okay. He's like, I know I, this is sin. I, I know it's wrong, but God is not so inclined my heart yet to change. And so there's nothing I can do about it, right? And they were, they were just all flabbergasted because they all bought into that strong hyper-Calvinism, really. Sure. <clears throat> they didn't know how to answer him, but they knew it was wrong. <laughs> and it's like, dude, you're, you're, you're mixing categories up. You're, you're where you don't belong in the eternal decrees um, where that's not what the scripture would ever say to you. You're not called to be passive and just somehow wait for God to change your heart and, and your actions. You are expected to work it as well. But it's going to, again, start in your heart and mind. Um, in the Old Testament example that we'll quote, and you have others in the show notes, is Joshua 24, 23. He says, Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst, and, in, and key, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So we, we've got to turn our hearts and minds to the Lord, and, and that is the first step in a sanctified life. And then you go into the New Testament, and you see this idea of the renewing of the mind. In fact, we're going to get into this as we deal with the social justice stuff. Big time. Um, big, yeah. Uh, but Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Literally, it's this age. Um, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the world is trying to conform you into its thinking, and the Christian, through the renewing of the mind, resists that and goes countercultural. In fact, Christians should always be countercultural. Um, Ephesians 4, 21 to 24 is another good one. Uh, but you did not learn Christ in this way. And then the caveat, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, uh, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And so two key passages there of showing that there's no room for passivity for the Christian. Right. So along with that, then, there, there's a need to properly understand oneself. Um, you, you know, there, there's a need to, to practice, in other words, setting your mind on proper objects, um, and you can get some references for these in the show notes, but some good ones is Romans 12, 3, uh, 4, which just comes after that passage. You just read right, right. Um, it gives four. So why should you not be conformed, but be transformed through the grace given to me? I say everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God is allotted to each a measure of faith. So here it's having a right perspective of self. Don't think too well of yourself. On the other hand, 
uh, don't think too low of yourself right. either. Um, but you should think in a manner so as to have sound judgment. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 7, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, which is the same word that he used up top here for mind, have this attitude or mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, so he's the model, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And the rest of that famous passage. Yeah, but the whole passage, in fact, the, so much of Philippians is about a mindset. Yes. And, and you know, yeah, yep. I think it's for now, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, um, go ahead. <clears throat> um, there's also a, a need to help others set their minds on proper things. So, so not only yourself, but now there, there's this communal aspect. Um, in fact, there's many passages that use the term uh, um, which is where you get like nuthetic counseling, counseling stuff yeah. like that, um, which, which literally means to put in mind. Um, it, it speaks of instruction and admonishment and warning and counseling, of course. And there's a host of passages that speak of that, Acts 20, 31, Romans 5, 14, so on and so forth. But what in there, what you're trying to do is you're trying to address the heart. Yes. That's the key point in that, right? You're When you're admonishing someone, you're not just chewing them out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ever have to talk to you about this again. It's, it's no, it's one where you're trying to sh- help them get a different perspective, gain a different uh, mindset. Think, think well. Yeah, think. Yeah, like even at the end of, I was just struck by that final chapter we did in Philippians, uh, that whole thing of do not be anxious Right. For nothing, but then he goes on to give the command. He says, "Dwell," which is the term for long meditation on that which is good, right, acceptable, perfect, lovely, so on and so forth. Right? They're thinking categories. Okay, so, so go ahead. So with sanctification, there's also a place for fear and faith, and again, this is oftentimes uh, lacking. Uh, I'm going to read from John Murray uh, in his Principles of Conduct. He says that the fear of God is the soul of godless. Um, is the soul of godless. We are advised that what the spirit regards as knowledge or wisdom takes its inception from the apprehension and emotion which the fear of God connotes. If we are thinking of the notes of biblical piety, none is more characteristic than the fear of the Lord, lest we should think that the religion of the Old Testament is in this respect on a lower level and that the New Testament rises above that which is represented by the fear of the Lord. We need but scan the New Testament to be relieved of any such misapprehension. The fear of God in us is that frame of heart and mind which reflects our apprehension of who and what God is and who and what God is uh, will tolerate nothing less than total commitment to him. So the whole idea is the better that you understand the person of God, the greater the fear, hence an appropriate fear because you should be afraid of him. Um, And then that reflects in your life. So just some examples. Uh, we have a lot that we'll supply to you, but we'll just quote a few. Uh, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body. So this is coming from Christ, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Second um, Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness where in the realm of the fear of God. 
Um, so our holiness is not just we're trying to get pharisaical, but rather it's because we have this fear of God. So in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, that one, it, at, as you go through the, the difficulties of the trials, what happens is that you start to find out what is the actual content of your faith rather than what you thought was the content of the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, the point in all of this is that faith is not merely something we exercise once and enter into salvation. Rather, faith is this continuous process where we're commended to practice day by day, moment by moment. So J. Barton Payne, uh, he writes in his book, The Theology of the Older Testament, um, he says this, uh, successful ethics cannot exist independently of faith in the redeemed. Uh, I don't know what that, that. Successful ethics cannot exist independently of faith in the redeemed God. Okay, that's redeemed of redeemed of God. Okay, the redeemed of God. Sorry, a little typo there. We'll uh, start again. Successful ethics cannot exist independently of faith in the redeemed of God. Genuine faith cannot long exist independent of ethic commitment. Now that's a that's a strong one because he's saying uh, genuine faith cannot continue if there's also not a presence of an ethical change. Right. And that that's so we're without saying it, we're talking about perseverance of saints in this whole concept of sanctification. It's you can't say I believe and now that I believe I'm safe, okay, I can go and live like a hellion. It's no, it that 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 will never it will never persevere. It will never make it, if yeah. that makes sense. That's right. Um, and then you have uh, Burkhauer, uh, a nice quote from him. He says, We must be thoroughly aware that in shifting from justification to sanctification, we're not withdrawing from the sphere of faith. Christian activity is certainly not to be excluded or belittled or condemned, but if this activity is to be sound, it must never be severed from its relation to the mercy of God. The doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit is designed precisely to present us from viewing man as an independent, dynamistic unit. Only theologians Golly, coming yeah. up with this. <laughs> um, this doctrine does not make man self-sufficient, but rather underlines his perpetual and inherent lack of self-sufficiency. All views which end up with some simplistic theory of regeneration will deprive us of the wonderful mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Wonderful, because it turns man from a study of his own condition to the life of faith in which he feeds on God's grace alone and seeks to continue in the sanctification that he has received. Faith is the pivot on which everything revolves. Faith, though not itself creative, uh, perseveres us from, preserves us from autonomous self-sanctification and moralism. For progress in sanctification never meant working out one's own salvation under one's own auspices, on the contrary, it meant working out one's own salvation with a rising sense of, in, of dependence on God's grace. Uh, in other words, the longer that you walk with Christ, the more you realize you're dependent on him. And, and so the faith grows. Right. Um, so from there we go into sanctification and the centrality of love. Uh, so listen to what uh, Guthrie says here. He says, the theme of love is particularly characteristic of the Johannine literature. Boy, that's hard for my lips to get around. 
Um, as a desirable Christian virtue, it has its roots in God's love for his son. On many occasions, he, being Jesus, pointed out that love for himself was to be a motive for ethical behavior. There can be no doubts that the new life, as Jesus conceived it, centered on love. Moreover, man's love for God comes more to the fore in the epistles than in the gospel as a motive for the Christian life. They, meaning the love passages of 1 John, uh, set a high target, but are not expected for that reason to deter people from reaching toward it. Indeed, for Christians, loving is not an op- uh, uh, this is a great line. Indeed, for Christians, loving is not an option, but an obligation. And that would just send some people into horror to hear that. It's like, it's not an obligation. You shouldn't, it's like, no, it is. It's yep. a, it's, it's a duty. Yeah. Love is commanded over and over again. Yeah. Right? Um, I, I, I've done that in marriage counseling. You know, it's like, it's your duty to love your wife and the wife then it's really funny because it's marriage counseling. So usually they're at odds with one another and it's pretty getting pretty bad that they actually decided to talk to the pastor. And then the wife jumps in there. Well, I don't want it to be a duty. I just, I want him to love me. It shouldn't be. A, and it's like, no, it's a duty. And, and so you're, you see that she probably got an unbiblical sense of what it means to love her as Christ loves the church. So he's chasing a shadow with her. Right. And plus it has to be sometime, somehow spontaneous rather than no, the, the idea of what love looks like is actually spelled out for you. And when you're doing those and you're doing those willingly, but knowing that this is what is expected of you, you're showing love. Uh, whether the emotion, whatever that might be, is there at any given time, doesn't really matter. Right. Um, Same thing with parents toward their kids. Oh, goodness. Most um, definitely. You want to read the Ritterboss yeah, one? Yeah, good old Herman uh, Ritterboss. Uh, he says, the content of the new obedience in the epistles of Paul, too, finds its most central and fundamental expression in love. This central significance of love in Paul's preaching of the new life can be shown in various ways. Just as faith can be called the mode of existence of the new life, in the first place, this love derives its central significance from the fact that it is the reflection of the love of God in Jesus. In the second place, this love constitutes the vital element of the church. It is in love that the body of which Christ is the head is built up, Ephesians 4.15, and in which believers together are rooted and grounded, Ephesians 3.17. For this reason, love can be called the bond of perfection, Colossians 3.14, Indeed, it is it, it it its own way it, it in its own way it forms the unity of the church. Colossians two two, the application of the commandment of love consequently has in Paul the clear effect of stirring up the strong awareness in the church of mutual responsibility. Here again, there is a clear relationship between love and sanctification, as a fellowship sanctified and appropriated by God to Himself. The church is bound together and set apart by love. All right, that's some good stuff there. Uh, worth you guys backing up and listening to them a couple of times because they're they're heavy quotes. But there are some theological tension that's related to this doctrine of sanctification. Uh, issues related to the idea of the old man and new man, as well as the old nature and new nature. Uh, first that you need to understand is that there's a strong corporate connection along with an eschatological emphasis with the man terms. You need to know that. Um, it, this is actually important stuff, folks. Uh, for instance, in Romans 6, 1 and following, it's, it, you, 
most of the translations say the old self, but it literally is the old man. Um, and so we have this old man and he's introduced, but it's not on its own. It's not just like I'm the old man. Right. It's actually connected to the Adam theology of chapter five. Um, and so you should go back and listen to our justification episodes for Adam theology to get your heads around that again, if you've forgotten. But because we were in Adam, we belong to the old man. Right. And so the old man is bigger than you. Yeah. And that was what I was raised on was you want to starve the old man and feed the new man. Were you taught that? A little bit. Oh, man. Not, that wasn't the language used. But. Oh, that was the stuff we were, we were you, you're feeding the, the old man. You need to starve him. Mm -hmm. um, and it misses the point because it makes it all about you and your old life and stuff. It's not talking about, it's talking about this this reality that you were in the old man and now you're in the new man who is in meaning you're in christ and so in the same way the concept of old and new fall into that eschatological truth of the now but not yet which is seen throughout the new testament so let me read a, a, a fairly long quote here um if i can get my mouse to cooperate with me it is important not to frame these terms exclusively in anthropological or soteriological terms. As Doug Moo points out, this term, old man or nature, has frequently been taken to refer to a part of each believer which is either destroyed or conquered at conversion. But Pauline categories encourage us to consider this as a corporate term. Um, the term occurs twice elsewhere in Paul in Ephesians 4.22 and Colossians 3.9, and in both of which cases it is clearly contrasted with the new man. This term is clearly implied to be a corporate one in Colossians 3.10-11 because Paul asserts that religious, national, and social distinctions are not relevant to this man. Right. Similarly, Ephesians 2.15 asserts that God has made one new man out of Gentiles and Jews. When we recall that Christ himself is called the second man in contrast to Adam, the first man, we are now well on our way to showing that, that the old man is a term which describes mankind in Adam. Our old man would thus refer to the believer insofar as he belongs to Adam, the head of the old age dominated by sin and death. And I could build on that. That's why our body still belongs to this age. And that's why it's breaking down and it suffers. And, and that's why it has to be redeemed and resurrected and changed. Um, it's not like we're going to have a new body. It's a ghost-like body. What we'll have is a body, though, that no longer com it is stained, if you will, by the, the effects of this age. But in the new age, the new, um, again, getting into that old new, now will be fit to dwell in eternity because no longer will sin in any way, shape, or form be present, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's really it's, cool, though. Yeah. So that's that now and not yet. I'm now in Christ, so I'm in the new man. Um, but there's this not yet that's still coming along that, that we still are around sin. We're surrounded by sin. Our body is uh, affected by sin. And so there's that not yet category that's present. And that's the battle that every true Christian understands. That, yeah. You know, but. yeah and, and what you were saying here in this quote is the primary emphasis, though, is on these corporate realities. Right. So the, the old man is that which belongs to Adam 
and the brokenness of the fallen age that Adam represents, the new man is Christ and essentially his body, which is now made up of both Jew and Gentile. Right. And so really it's speaking of these categories of right. people or classes. Right. Um, so what about the old man? Well, it is primarily corporate, but there's also an individual aspect to that as well, because of course, anything that's corporate is made up of individuals. Um, so this term along with, with the new man is, is not describing some schizophrenic quality of a redeemed person. It's not valid in any way to describe that there are two men within each believer. So if you're now a Christian, you're not, you don't, you're not both old and new. That's not how the Bible is talking about no, it. No. Um, but that, that's a common view and it's oh, yeah. doing due to being casual with the text. Um, it's confusing, confusing typically what we call the flesh with the old man, which yeah. is a completely different yeah. topic. When we're talking about old man, we're not talking about the flesh and we're talking about the flesh or sarks is a word. We're not talking about the old man. They're two separate categories biblically, but in most people's minds they're not. Yeah. Right. And the, the old man, um, as the Bible would talk about it is, is that human person is seen from his unregenerate state. Right. Um, it's this, it's speaking of a, yeah, a state of being. So you're, you're either in the old man again, Adam and all he represents, or you're in the new man. Meaning you're not a Christian. Right. Or you're in Christ, the new man where you're now regenerate and therefore a Christian. Um, and so he, the old man, he's a slave to sin. He's dead in sin. He's an unreconciled human. Uh, he is indeed an overt enemy of God. But in the new man, you're now redeemed. You're that right, friend of, right, right, right. of God. So talk then a little bit about the new man. Okay, so that's really important if they can get that in their head. Um, it's not talking about, yeah, it's talking about an unregenerate state. So the new man, here we see the description of the redeemed as what they are now in Christ Jesus. So an example would be 1 Corinthians 5.17. And this is a passage commonly taken out of context. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Literally, he is new uh, creature. He is the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Literally, it's the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Um, and it's emphasizing that you've been transitioned from one age and reality into another one. It's it's far better than I once was a prostitute. Now I'm not a prostitute. I once was a drug addict. Now I'm not. That's you, that may be true, but that's not the point. Right. It's, it's better than that. Um, so here's what Ladd says. Uh, he says the idea of newness uh, is distinctly eschatological. The Pauline statement that in Christ the old has passed away and the new has come is an eschatological statement. The underlying idea is that while believers live in the old age, which is our struggle, because they're in Christ, they belong to the new age with its new creation, which is uh, an, it's in the indicative, meaning it's a fact, and they are to live a life that's expressive of the new existence. That's where your imperative, and we talked about the indicative imperative. Certain things are just fact. We are now a new creature, and we live in this new creation, and therefore, in light of that, this is what you must do yeah. uh, in this fallen world. Yeah. Uh, and Lad, he's the one who kind of... Um he established that old now and not yet theology, yeah, um, which is why his New Testament was so important, his theology of New Testament. So then you get into the old nature and the new nature. Uh, and so here now we move into to theological categories 
that describe the presence of flesh in the sin nature? Meaning, when, when Matt says theological categories, we're not talking biblical ones. Right. Uh, old man, new man. yes. biblical terms that the Bible itself uses. Uh, unfortunately, due to what I would call poor translation, it gets confused. People, some, I think it's NIV will take the old man or old self and old nature call it the old nature is like no it's not it's because as you said earlier um the behold the, the old is gone behold the new has come though it's literally old and just new so they'll now insert man or nature or right right and so understand we're we're now shifting from a biblical term to a theological term and it's important to have, but go ahead yeah so so whereas the old man is is crucified and is now gone in the believer because he's, as we've been saying, in this new man who is Jesus Christ. Uh, here we have the reality that though we belong to the new, the old, in some, it, it still clings to us and we, we move and live within a corrupt world that's been imprisoned by that old, if you will. Um, uh, there's some passages here if you want to get in the show notes that'll be helpful to show that. So in light of that, what's the meaning of nature? Well, remember, this is not an explicitly biblical term. Uh, it's a theological one that theologians have developed. Um, but it, it does not mean person. It's not what we're talking about. Um, it can mean dispositional or capacities. Um, so maybe you're prone toward certain things still because well, we, of that fleshly nature. In my preaching, I'll talk about when we get talk about like uh, Galatians 5, and he says the deeds of the flesh are evident. Flesh is the nature you could also then use the theological term uh here that we're using of it's it's the old nature yeah. um it's that propensity or disposition to still sin and but what i'll say to people is you look at this this list that he gives and you might say well i don't struggle with any of these sexual issues not, you know that, that's just not where i'm at but i am a factious person that what i like to try to help people think about is all of us have a bent and as we give into that disposition of sin, we invariably will go toward those bents. And so some people, it's anger. Some people, it's sexual immorality. Some, it's carousing, whatever it might be. But um, all of it is simply that disposition that we still carry because we live within a fallen age. Yeah. And, and There's that pressure. Yes, to, yes. To, and, to and when it presses, we bend in whatever way we... Right ourselves are just prone to do that. Which again is why why the thinking that mind category is so important because though you're naturally bent toward that and you feel a draw and a pull toward that, now you have to put on the right mindset and say, this is bad, this is ungodly, this is of this age. And so now I have to actively suppress that by the power of the spirit and now run toward holiness. Yeah, and it, it's if you learn to actually appreciate those propensities, you may hate them, but appreciate them because they then become warning bells that when you're starting to find yourself getting more and more angry or you're, and that's your bent, that's an indication that you are giving into the flesh. Yeah. It's not the anger. The anger is not the problem. The real problem is the source of that, which is the flesh. And so go back to the, that core issue and address that heart issue by the power of the spirit, as you said, and now you're, you're, you're 
engaged in true spiritual warfare and it'll be good for your good yeah if that makes sense yeah that's good uh let me just throw in a little caveat here when when you're reading theology or christian books this is also why it's uh important to take care in how you read often books will start out by talking about the nature or something like that but then somewhere along the way the author will just they'll switch to the man right yeah. the the old nature and then all of a sudden he'll say the old man um, and the, it might be inadvertent, but what they're actually doing is confusing, again, those two sets of terms that you that are not interchangeable. Um, we're talking about the old man. Again, it's that being in Adam, that unregenerate state, um, whereas when we're talking about nature, um, you still carry that old fleshly nature with you. At disposition. Yeah. Um, my professor called it the homardiological hangover. Yeah, I, I like that one. Yeah, you're not – or <laughs> – your sin hangover. You're not still dead in your sins, but you still carry the effects and the lingering effects, just like a drunk would after a bad hangover. Yeah. He's not still technically drunk, but the effects are there. Yeah. Um, it's also important to understand that all of this uh, is the tension of that now and not yet of every believer. Um, and we all know what that is like. Uh, the strange thing is a quote uh, from uh, Mole. Um, the strange thing about the new life claimed by Christians is that they have it and have it not. Amen to that. Uh, they have yet to become what they, as they claim, they already are. Not surprisingly, this causes tension. The Christian claim, if taken seriously, means perplexity for the historian, disturbance of the ethicist, the pain for the believer. Um, he has uh, been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the king, a kingdom of God's beloved son. That's Colossians 1.13. And yet he remains vulnerable to what in Galatians is called the present evil age. So he is torn in two directions. The preacher tells him that what he could not do for himself has already been done for him by God and that he has only to accept with gratitude the finished work of Christ. And yet the same preacher is always exhorting him to do better and telling him that his performance does not match up to his calling. In a nutshell, the Christian command is a perplexing one. Become what you are. It is paradoxical. It is tension-causing. If the growing pains are never felt, here's the painful yeah. line. If the growing pains are never felt, it is doubtful whether the new life has begun. That's such a good... <laughs> But it, yeah. it's so true. I mean, on one level, you're, you're, and this is again the error of the gospel movement in many people's preaching, not everyone's, but they're, they're so good about what Christ has done on your behalf, but they're slow to exhort you, therefore, live right. this way. You're commanded to live this way. And, and every Christian, whether they're a brand new baby Christian or an old Christian, should constantly feel that tension in various ways. It's just, it's yeah. the it, and it's why Paul then, well, I would argue that if you do and if you walk in that and you you don't make friends with your flesh, um, then the things of this world, as him goes, become strangely dim. Right? Yeah. You yeah. you become less enamored by this world, and you want Christ's return. You want yeah. you you welcome death. Because you're with Christ and the battle is done. All you got to do now is wait for the resurrection. But that's where the eschatological reality becomes something that motivates you. It's that I'm going to keep fighting because there's one day I get rest. Um, 
And, and so we shouldn't shy away from it and say, you know, I, I just need a break from this. I, you know, how many people have left church because they feel condemned? It's like, you're condemned because you're doing it. Right. <laughs> it's, right. Uh, that, it's not like we're inventing things. You're not doing what you ought to do. And, and there's this tension in there. Embrace that and now enter the fight and you'll do fine. You'll do fine. It won't be fun, but you'll do fine. And the Lord will give you respite. Uh, throughout that time that's good so um yeah you read that cfd mool the great uh you know he that was carson's advisor for phd studies really yeah at cambridge he lived to like 99 years old or something like that but um all of his stuff is worthwhile um so that that's probably enough for today uh the the big takeaway uh is to understand that the christian life is one that's increasingly conforming into the image of jesus um, and there's a great connection between a Christian's growth, as we saw with the concepts of both faith and love. Uh, additionally, there'll always be a tension between the now and not yet. Uh, there's a sense in which, while freed from the old, we we still live in this old age, um, as you were saying. There'll, there'll always be this struggle with sin. Um, and so while a person grows more into that image of Jesus, they're, they're increasingly putting away sin, but at the same time increasingly putting on holiness, um, but there's also a sense in, w- in which as they do that, they'll, bec- they'll just become more and more aware of their sin. Mm-hmm. Um, they-, they will see it more and more for what it is. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for a person to become born again and feel like they're untouchable. Um, many, you know, it's like like sin is like duck off a of water's back at first. Um, but then the longer they walk with the Lord, they almost feel like they're moving backwards yeah. in their holiness. Well, when I preached through First Timothy, Paul's, uses the present tense uh, about the sinner of whom I am chief. Foremost, you know, here, yeah. here he is um, at the end of his life. We would dream. Been to the third heaven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we would dream to be him in, in godliness and knowledge and stuff. And yet, yet he reflects, he's like, I am still that foremost or chief sinner. Yeah. That's, that's, that's should wake up a lot of people who are starting to think, and it's usually somewhere midway in their Christian life that they're, they've arrived. And it's like, you haven't arrived. You haven't even begun to arrive. But we decide we're going to rest. And invariably with that, we actually regress rather yeah. than make progress. Yeah. And, and, but knowing that it, it is comforting, I think. Because as you're increasing in holiness, you, there's also an increasing awareness of the reality of sin in your own life. And, and I would say if, if it's a genuine Christian, yeah, we go through seasons of up and down and those kinds of things. But it's not so much that a person's moving backwards as as much as, you know, now they're becoming, again, increasingly aware of how sin-filled they truly are. Um, they, they keep turning over those new rocks, so to speak, and they see sin that they never saw before. It's like, where did this come from? Um, and so it's not so much that they're moving backwards, I would say, as Sometimes it might just be that they're becoming more and more aware of what was always there, but they just never saw it. And so while it can be discouraging, I would say it's also the reality of every growing Christian. So embrace it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you just Every day you pick up your head, you set your eyes on Jesus, you, you keep fighting that sin that is yours, and you press on, as Paul would say. Um, and so as you look back over the years— I think you'll see that you've grown, hopefully. Um, again, don't measure by this week compared to last week or this month to last month, but this five years to the previous yeah, five years. Yeah. Take that longer view. 
Um, and so while every Christian is not what they hope to be or think they should be, um, the encouraging part is if you are growing in Christ, you're certainly not one, what you once were. Um, and, that, and again, that's that great tension of now and not yet. We remain in the old, but we press on to the new. All right. So next time we're going to finish up sanctification as well as uh, systematic theology too. Um, and we're going to talk about the ideas of assurance and eternal security and then the, the actual get into the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But until then, we would say make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We really do want to hear your thoughts. Uh, don't forget to like or share, comment, rate, review, connect with us on the various social media and tell a friend. Mm-hmm.